Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Bren, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's, a, it's an honor. It's so great to get to talk to folks who are interested in the new economic models. That's, a, that's, a, that's you know, being just a fisherman, I didn't think this would ever happen. Well, Bren, it's so great to have you on the show. And I'd love for you to start with a description for our listeners. What is ocean farming? And how, how does ocean farm differ from planting a seed in the ground and then harvesting a head of broccoli and bringing it to market that way? Sure, sure. First, I'd say ocean farming, there's over 50 terms that have been there's academic counted up all the different ways people talk about the way we farm the ocean. And it's as bad as, you know, this is terrible names are built by scientists, IMPA, which is Integrated Multitropic Aquaculture, which I still don't know what that is. And then there's like mariculture and aquaculture. I, um, I just decided to start in a, as a simple man, I decided to start in a simple place and to say, okay, we're ocean farming. And we're going to do a particular type uh, of ocean farming. And really, I think the difference is I don't know anything about land. <laughs> I spend as little time on land as possible. It's just, it's just stressful. <laughs> I think the, the key difference is that we have zero inputs. So, you know, you get a tomato, you get a plant of tomato seed, they grow, you got to water it, you got to fertilize it, you got to have a greenhouse, you harvest it, and then it goes to market. And it's, I think, a globally competitive market. You know, as we know from the Amokali workers and things like that, the price point is really, really low. It's hard to make a living growing tomatoes or kale or things like that. As we know, in 2012, you know, 91% of land-based farmers didn't make money. They lost, um, I think it was $1,200 was, was, the, was, was the average. I think what we're trying to do is take all the lessons learned from that we've been watching on land-based agriculture and not make the same mistakes. Like, let's do food right and this blank slate the ocean. So we pick species, not like fish that you have to feed, that you have to use antibiotics and things like that. What we do is zero input species. So everything we grow requires no fresh water, no fertilizer, no feed, and of course, no land. And the key there is not only the environmental benefits, but also in the era of a new climate economy, as water prices go up, feed, fertilizer prices, energy prices go up, zero input food is going to be the most affordable food to grow and the most affordable food to eat. We're going to be eating zero input food. There's no question. I mean, the question for us is it going to be economically viable long term and is it going to be delicious climate cuisine or is it going to be like the force fed, you know, cod liver oil? So, Bren, you were just recently in Korea, correct? With a large conference. Could you talk about some of your observations there at that conference around sort of the state of other people pursuing this type of endeavor and and maybe are are they economically and... It was really interesting. It was the first gathering of 40 people from around the world who do polyculture in the ocean. And there were people who do salmon with seaweed, shellfish, there are people that just do, you know, different kinds of seaweed, people that just do shellfish. And really, how do you take a piece of ocean and grow as many species as possible and, and make it economically viable? So I went there to learn so much, and I did. It was a very dorky crowd. You know, we, we were all pulling up diagrams of our farms and talking about different anchor systems. It was really nitty-gritty, nitty which was amazing. What was surprising to me is that on the polyculture front, there is not one example out there of a profitable polyculture farm. They are all science-based farms run by grants. And as soon as the grants have run out, 
then the fishermen or whoever's working the farms would drop out because it's there either isn't there quite honestly the main thing is they're growing these things and there aren't strong markets to sell them uh, at a price point that makes it profitable so that was shocking i think um to me and we're ahead of the curve on that because we actually have a profitable model and we're, we're sort of functioning and suddenly we became the example of god how do you that you can scale this stuff like it works in the real world it's not just great with science papers of course the asian societies have been doing this for a thousand years they've been doing seaweed and just incredible at it, really at scale. I mean, it's just stunning to see you know, thousands and thousands of acres of seaweed farms. It is still monoculture. And the other thing is, it's their labor costs have been so low, and it has such a long tradition that the way they farm is really, really sort of, um, sort of labor intensive. So a hatchery, they'll have 300 workers there weaving seaweed into the line, something that we're able to do literally in a couple hours. What's happened, I think, is we're, we're looking more like India in terms of ocean farming, where we have no, tra- we have no tradition of it here, and uh, we're going to top over that industrial revolution that India largely uh, jumped over and go right into the, a different economy, like a cell phone economy. Not a lot of problems with Indian analysis, but, that's, but just it's sort of a, a large-scale conceptual thing. So we're a bit ahead of the curve. We have a ton to learn, but their systems are very expensive. Our system is extremely cheap, and that's been the secret of replication. I mean, anybody with 20 acres in a boat, $20,000 can start their own farm, be farming the first year. This is the nail salon model of the sea, and that's what you need, both mm-hmm. so that this replicates and so average people, regular folks like me, can get into this and start their own farms. You don't have to be a, you know, a Google or an Amazon to, to play up the strain. So compared to this model of high labor, maybe centralized in one or two factories, your vision is more of a regionally replicable model with plenty of labor, but maybe more distributed across many different smaller scale enterprises along our coastlines? Yeah, I mean, so a couple of times there. One is, I think, I mean, I care. I mean, you know, like one of my slogans is there aren't going to be jobs or food on a dead planet. I'm very, I don't, I'm not an environmentalist. I believe in restoring and protecting ecosystems because it allows me to spend my life supporting my family on the ocean, right? Um, so the jobs piece is key. The question on the jobs piece is, and for sustainability in general, is what's the, what's the sweet spot? In terms of if, if I do everything physically on my boat, um, which I, I did for way too long, my body is destroyed. I mean, I'm like, my ba- I crawl out of bed like a lobster or a crab in the morning. It's a, you know, I'm blind in one half eye. Like, at wh- where in, what's the sweet spot of sort of, mechan- of automation on my boat to save my body? And then in the plants, anywhere where there's carpal tunnels, we probably want to automate that piece, right? So we want to create lots of jobs. But then I think the key is we don't want a vertical infrastructure. We don't want, you know, a CEO, a company, you know, that's owning all these farms, that owns the factories and then owns the market. We want distributed. We want what we think of as a green wave reef, which is network productions of 25 to 50 farms in an area, a seafood hub and hatchery placed in a struggling low-income community, a ring of big institutional buyers, the Googles, the universities, things like that, and then a ring of entrepreneurs doing value-added products, the kelp turkeys, the biofuels, the fertilizers. And then you take that green wave reef and you replicate it every 200 miles. And to me, that's a form of distributed productions, distributed ownership. I mean, as a farmer and a fisherman, I don't want to work for anybody. The last thing, I mean, I will spend my life losing money um, just so I don't have a boss, right? And that's, they call it a sticky profession. You need agency. And in the new economy, those of us that are thinking about what are new models of ownership and incentives for, to move people into these new industry, it really is agency. It's the, it's the ability to own your own business 
while addressing some of the biggest economic and environmental challenges of our time. I think the old economy has an agency deficiency, uh, and we're really hoping to fix that. The other piece here I'll just say is the trouble aquaculture had was it industrialized right away in the 80s and 90s. I used to work on the big salmon farm, and it tried to grow around existing taste. So it grew salmon and tunas and things like that were what people wanted to eat. Well, that was stupid because what we need to grow, like that palate came around in an industrial fishery. And then we just decided to farm it without asking the questions, are these the right species to farm in the economic front and on the um, like nutritional? So instead we asked the oceans, okay, what is, what does it make sense to grow? And then structure around that. And that's why we move all the way to the other end to grow zero input species, just shellfish and seaweeds and have it be, um, a structure of the farm so we don't have a lot of infrastructure because we don't have to fight gravity underwater in, in any meaningful way. So let's use that and come at this problem the other way. So I think the polyculture community is still obsessed with, okay, how do we make, how do we embed some seaweeds into a salmon farm to make a salmon farm better? Well, that's not economically viable and it still remains tethered to fish. And maybe we'll get to fish, you know, salmon farming and stuff has gotten much, much better over the years in terms of feed conversions and waste and stuff like that. But we can get started on the other end and have zero of those problems and, in fact, be restoring ecosystems, like moving way beyond sustainability. You touched on two really, really important points, among many others. And just to underscore, we're so grateful that the book Drawdown, Paul Hawkins' new book, The Most Comprehensive Plan to Reverse Global Warming, just came out in Plant-Rich Foods is number four on, the, on this ranking, the series of um, important uh, solutions to reverse global warming. So I'm really grateful that you underscore this idea that we can eat what fish eat to get our essential nutrients to fuel our you know, growing human populations. It's amazing. I was just uh, hanging out with the folks at Pie Ranch, right out in right out in your area there, mm. and um, the light bulb went off, and we're like, oh, we're both doing polyculture, right? Mm. I mean, that's like we're we're engaged in the same thing: polyculture on land and polyculture in sea. And how do we bridge that? right? The ideas are the same. How do we do the circular economy or regenerative economy, whatever the sort of term that folks are sort of comfortable using? And, you know, how do we address social justice issues, economic issues? You have climate farmers and climate cuisine, all these uh, same sets of questions. How do we break down the identity of a farmer and a fisherman so that they're spending half the year growing mushrooms in shipping containers and the other half growing kelp on their 20 acres, you know, offshore? Like we, there, there's so much opportunity to build a bridge and you know, too often our thinking about the food system stops at the water's edge. And I think all of the potential, it's, it's like, it's the, and it's potential to go big. I mean, the World Bank just did a report. This is a stunning, stunning number that I almost don't even feel comfortable saying because it's at such scale. If you were to take um, 5% of U.S. waters and turn them into a seaweed and polyculture farms, it would create 50 million direct jobs. I mean, that is just like, <laughs> and, in, and the equivalent of 69 trillion hamburgers in terms of uh, protein and food, right? I mean, so you want to think big and you want, the, you, you, you want this not to be just like boutique farmer's market stuff or Brooklyn bee farms on roofs, you know, which is all great, but we're not going to lift communities out of poverty. We're not going to take the people that were left behind in the industrialized economy, the black and brown, brown folks, the immigrants that are um, uh, so important in our economy and put them in the front of the line unless we're talking about, you know, unless we're talking about hundreds of thousands of opportunities uh, mm -hmm. for people. And so that's where the excitement is. And it's an industry that can go to scale if we structure it the right way. And an in industry that can really, you know, help, have, be a piece in the drawdown puzzle of helping restore the planet. 
you spoke to some really core commitments that Lyft Economy has been pursuing and dreaming about and envisioning since our inception, this, this model of principles and patterns of restorative economies in all aspects of our essential human needs, in food, in ocean restoration. The principles are the same, whether you're a land-based farmer or an ocean farmer. And I appreciate you even describing a vision of a job that potentially one could weave in both, uh, because I think Mm -hmm. that really does speak to the holistic elements of your vision. I want to ask about one specific element that I think is really critical to this, and that is you've made a commitment to partnering with, to to launching your nonprofit GreenWave. And part of that, I think, has to do with being able to open source the model to some extent. Can you talk a little bit about this open source philosophy of yours? Sure. So, you know, I I experiment with the farming for like 15 years. And I, just real quick, let me draw a picture for folks because it's, you know, there's nothing much to see out there when you go out and it, it's hard for people to picture it. So sort of just picture an underwater garden where you've got sort of hurricane proof anchors on the edges of the farm up to buoys on the surface and then just strung across those buoys horizontal. Below, we have um, a rope. And it's just a simple scaffolding system made out of a rope. And from there, we grow our kelp uh, 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 vertically downwards we grow our mussels and, and scallops and lanternets and, and, and mussel socks. And then below that on the seafloor, we have our oyster cages and then clams down in the mud. The key is we it's vertical, so we have extremely small footprints but can grow a huge amount of food in small uh, uh, areas. And it's just so cheap to build, right? And um, that goes to the open source question. I was did this for a bunch of years, and then I, I decided, well, my goal isn't to become – yeah, quite honestly, a you know huge company owner, a CEO of something. It's much more. I want to die on my boat one day with ten thousand new ocean farmers out there um, uh, along our coast, um, uh, and um, that that sort of is my uh, 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 what drives me. And so I decided to take my model and open source it, and um, and create a green wave. And green wave is a nonprofit, which does three things: one, it trains a new generation of ocean farmers; two, it does a policy required to make sure our seas are protected and the ocean planning um, uh, happens the right way. And three, the R&D to stay ahead of the climate curve. What species should be growing? How do we do mobile hatcheries and, and, and uh, mobile processing centers, things like that. Um, and the, the training program, a farmer gets a couple things. They get small grants if it's needs-based. Uh, they get free seed for two years. They get our support um, uh, for two years. So they can just call us off and we go to the farms and help them. They come to us and so to your and then they get a cold weather here from Patagonia, who's been an incredible supporter and sponsor of ours. And then the last thing is we guarantee to purchase uh, 80% of what they grow for three to five years. And that's been the secret, right? Where people can come in, they can build a farm for $20,000, and they can know whatever they grow, they can sell. Um, and that's been the, sort of the game changer. And it's and just to clarify, the structural ecosystem, I have my farm, Pimple Island Ocean Farm, that... Um, uh, you know, allows me to uh, live my life the way I want to stay, stay happy and not do conference calls all the time. The, and then we've got Greenway, which is the nonprofit, and then Sea Green Farms is sort of the ambitious, larger for for profit. Greenway, like I said, does training policy and R and D. Sea Greens does um, the capital intensive infrastructure, processing plants, stuff like that, and market development. But the weakness of my model is that it's cheap to do stuff out in the ocean. You don't have to feed, and you don't have to fight gravity. When you hit land, stuff's expensive, right? It gets more like land-based 
uh, farming. And so we have those two entities sitting side by side. And the question for us always is what part of this ecosystem is for profit? What part of it is nonprofit? What part of it is break even? It's, it's not either or. I think many of our uh, folks in our investment community and our nonprofit community, it's almost too ideological. Like you have to do one or the other. No, we need a complex approach, all hands on deck and these and knowing what kind of money when to build something from the ground up and to make sure it's um, uh, profitable. I think that's what we've been we've been trying to do. The the tra- the replicability the open source thing I think has created a bit of a tidal wave. I didn't know any of this was hap- going to happen, and I, it's sort of a challenge now because we're so low in capacity on the nonprofit side. Is that we have requests to start farms in every coastal state in North America and 20 countries around the world, and our farmers are Iraq vets. They're indigenous folks. They're Latinos. They're um, 11th generation fishermen. They're lobstermen, and they're land based farmers. We have a flood of young land-based farmers that can't afford land. They've been stuck on sort of a neo-feudal system, working on other people's lands. They can't afford uh, buildings, all that sort of stuff. They come to us, and it's, this is cheap and easy. So Nick Pastor is one of our new farmers. He was uh, eight years on dairy and organic farms. He dreamed to have his own farm, was searching for land for all those years, couldn't afford it. We have him up, and he has his, he has his, uh, 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 he's leased his property, and he'll be up and going by. Um, next season. It's incredible. I want to talk a little bit about the economics for the farmer. So currently, how does it work? Do, do you you currently guarantee to purchase from these farmers? Are, are any of them at, at commercialization where you are purchasing and their, their seaweed is going to, or is that still in process as you build the capital intensive um, infrastructure? Oh no, we're 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 the Greenwave Reef is up and running. We're by farmers. We got ten farms out there that are growing at different levels. Some are more experimental because we had to test whether the sites were good growing areas, and some were, some aren't. We have other farmers growing at scale, like fifty thousand pounds and stuff like that. We're we're right now. My team is up getting thousands of pounds, both from Maine and Rhode Island, coming up. Our processing plant can handle five thousand pounds of kelp a day. Uh, we have a hatchery network of three hatcheries, the largest hatchery network in the in the country and we're just about to expand after this season to a new 10,000 square foot facility that we we have so no folks are already you know they were paid last year and they're getting paid this year but this year's at a higher uh, higher scale because we seeking farms has been able to scale up the processing and here's the here's the thing i mean we've been we've been working on a sort of social network and marketing storytelling strategy for a lot of years on this as soon as we scale we have standing orders for 600,000 pounds of kelp alone, and we can't meet that, right? So we're, we're trying to expand and train farmers as fast as possible. We'll be at 25 next year, and that reef will be complete. And that's why we feel confident now that it's time to begin moving to other places like California, uh, Norway. What happened to me originally was this idea came out, and, and again, it wasn't wholly, I mean, you know, you come up with ideas from stealing from everybody. It's sort of a Woody Guthrie uh, method, right? And and what we did was synthesize, right? So literally hundreds of years of experience of trying to grow things in the ocean. We brought it in under the rule of simplicity and replicability. Mm-hmm. And that was the that was the innovation. And most of this is happening in and around Long Island, correct? So just mm-hmm. for for the fun of it, if our listeners wanted to get a taste of some of these amazing ways that you're incorporating kelp into the American diet, would would they be able to go to a restaurant in New York City and and purchase a, a meal with with some of your farmers' kelp? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, I mean, uh, we're just harvesting. Literally started this week. This is mm-hmm. the water temp moment where we start pulling kelp out of the water, 
Um, and then it's, it's at places like Superiority Burger in, in the village that Brooke Headley, who was an incredible pastry chef, uh, you know, like award-winning pastry chef and moved into vegetables, really. And what's been really interesting for us is I, for years, I worked with seafood chefs and they are not the sweet spot for this. They bring the same spice mixes and sort of, you know, techniques of seafood and wraps around fish and seaweed salads. No, you know, you need people that know nothing about seafood. And that's Brooke. He knows vegetables. Right. So I gave him this kelp. First thing he did was barbecue kelp noodles with parsnips and breadcrumbs. Mm-hmm. Like he understood this had to do with sort of crunchiness and nuttiness and like treating it like a vegetable. And this is where um, uh, where it gets exciting for the chef community. I mean, there are 10,000 edible plants in the ocean and a couple hundred kinds of shellfish. I mean, kelp is just the gateway drug to an entirely new cuisine. I mean, imagine being a chef in 2017 and finding out there are arugula, spinaches, tomatoes, corns that you've never tasted before, never cooked with before. Suddenly this makes sort of the climate crisis a, <laughs> a little more palatable and, and not feel like they're just going to be, uh, you know, it's not going to be a recreation of that movie, The Road. On the other thing on the economic piece, so we guarantee the farmers purchasing. We're able to do that and still be profitable at the other side. And we set rates based on my experience as a farmer of what, it, what um, uh, how much you, you, you can make per acre. And it comes to just, you know, about the same profitability of kale, right? And a lot of kale farms, it's around, you know, 40,000 bucks per acre. We're like 37 bucks per acre, excluding the, labor, the, the labor cost for the, for the farmer, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, a, um, that's not in there. So you scale that up and it makes it very viable. You can actually make uh, make a living do that, doing that. And again, that's really important. The other thing is there can be multiple st- income streams on a farm, a community individual farm. So it can be in quadrants. You can sell food in one quarter as profits. You can do, of course, the eco, the ecotourism. I mean, our farms are community spaces where people, because anybody can both swim and fish on the farm. It's a community space where, where folks come and they swim through the kelp forests and the scallops and things like that. We invite people on and that can be an income stream. The other thing is we use our farms as data centers. So we're collecting data. This is still in the early stages where we're trying to raise money right now for data centers to put on a 10 of our farm to collect nitrogen, carbon, phosphorus, other attempts to do real-time monitoring, which will allow us our farmers to become better farmers, you know, um, which is key. The Excel spreadsheet is the secret to farming in many ways. Mm. But then also sell that data to the scientific community because it's way cheaper for us to do it, for them to build a farm. And then the four, then that leads into the fourth quadrant, which is ecosystem services, nitrogen and carbon trading programs. We have a program here in Connecticut and new legislation to include uh, shellfish and seaweed farmers in the nitrogen trading program. It's the only program like this in the country. We know that a 20 acre farm right now under current trading, you know, rates for carbon and nitrogen can make $12,000 in carbon and nitrogen credits. Those are World Bank uh, numbers. And so that's not a huge amount of money because carbon's too cheap right now. But it really, it's not only a perfect concept, that is, I mean, you know, that covers your insurance and fuel and maintenance costs of the year, right? It shaves off some of that overhead and really honors the role of the ocean farmer in providing benefits while everyone else is polluting. I'm really glad you reminded us of those ecosystem benefits, especially given that, you know, it, it may come somewhat from, um, carbon markets or or uh, World Bank incentives, but largely, are you seeing it come from consumer demand in the form of products that consumers feel better about and feel like they're actually making a difference through their food choices? I mean, absolutely. I mean, listen, um, uh, we're not selling a commodity, right? What we're selling is a vision 
of the world that that farm a plate that actually helps address the huge challenges inequality climate crisis things like that and it's a, it's something we can it's a dinner plate we can gather around to build an alternative right where I, while everybody else sort of thinks our ship and turns america around there's those that we can all come together and actually build the future so we can show it like this is concrete and real and this is really important to me like a lot of say the progressive new economy movement great ideas but very little actually on the ground practical scalable things that we can point to that's no one's fault but it's time to get concrete in a serious way because the the um you know the challenges we face are are are, are um uh, significant i mean for the consumer look how I mean, it's just a straight shot. We soak up five times more carbon than land-based plants. The New Yorker called our farm the, 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 the culinary equivalent of the electric car. We filter nitrogen out of the water column, nitrogen from over-fertilization that causes spreading dead zones. We function as artificial reef systems. So the best fishing in the entire area is on my farm. I, my farm gets surrounded by gillnets by commercial fishermen and recreational fishers come in. And then, third, and then lastly is... Um, uh, storm surge protection. So on the East Coast, there were trillions of oysters on our coast, and they actually slowed down storm surges. There's lots of evidence um, of, of this, um, uh, you know, collected over the years. Well, we're creating these structures, which just, you know, it's not a lot now because we don't have a lot of farms, but we're creating these structures which can protect coastal communities. Mm. So, Bren, I had the incredible privilege and opportunity, thanks to GreenWave, to be connected with our local California advocate and 3D ocean, aspiring 3D ocean farmer, Dan Marquez, who lives in Santa Barbara. Could you talk a little bit about your relationship with Dan and the work that he's done with GreenWave in Long Island, but also the aspirations around the model he's seeking to build here in Santa Barbara? Absolutely. I mean, Dan is our sort of working class genius on the East Coast. I think Dan is um, fulfills my dream of, of fading away, not being uh, central to this, and I can go return my farm while people like Dan uh, innovate. He's been, he, he's been working with us for about two, well, maybe three years now, and he has a lease in Santa Barbara that was um, a sort of granted to him by a scientist at UC Santa Barbara who had been working on polyculture for, for 30 or 40 years. Um, and so uh, Dan's going to set up a farm there. And it's going to be the first polyculture farm and the, the, the first commercial um, seaweed farm. And um, he, he, uh, and he, so he came out here, he visited our farm, we've been working with him. He came out and helped build the, and really redesigned our hatchery system. He brought so much of his own talent and genius to, to improving our, the way we grow uh, on, in our hatcheries. And so, uh, and he's a great story. I mean, half indigenous, half Latino, like he's a fifth generation. He talks about his, his, you know, family reunions and they have to stop counting at 750 people. I mean, he's dug in deep yeah. in, in that community. And where, where, and his wife is just an incredible social entrepreneur, really trying to figure out, okay, how do you do the value added, uh, uh, product? So they're just a great team. He's on our board and uh, we're just really excited to work with him. Right now he's going through the permitting process, which, which is going to be a complicated, process, uh, which is good in that we want to do this the right way, right? We want ocean planning, spatial planning, to be careful. We want buy-in from all sorts of different stakeholders. And that's what we did out the East Coast, and we need to do it right on the, the West Coast as well. I think on a policy front, what, what always is front and center on my mind is make sure we don't put the barriers of entry high and not put them on the farmer. So like, if it costs $100,000 to put in a farm because, you, because of the permitting requirements, 
then that's only large scale companies will be able to do that. We need to have that low to non-existent. That's all in Connecticut here in, some, in Rhode Island, some other places, that's all um, uh, taken care of by the state or by universities. So then needs to do be a site plan, an environmental impact assessment plan. And you see Santa Barbara and all these different people can help with that um, and do do that really the right way. So there isn't, so we're protecting eel grasses and achieving the goals, but that should, that cost has to be low. So it's those kinds of questions and challenges that we want to, um, we want to think through and do right in California. I think as we build a green wave reef in each area, it's going to look different. It needs to be a different strategy and really sort of designed around local needs. One of the interesting questions that sort of is floating out there is sort of what, a, listen, our oceans are a blank slate. The history of U.S. aquaculture has been just, fail, you know, um, um, sort of failure after failure. So how do we do this right? And our ocean conservation allies, they're kind of stuck in the last century. And I, I, the reason is, is what they're really thinking about, and it's important to do, but it doesn't address the core concerns. So most of the efforts is in ocean conservation, building marine parks, conservation zones. Now that is wonderful and we need to do that. But we could set aside our entire oceans as a conservation zone and they're still gonna die. I mean, climate change is expected to wipe out one out of four species, threaten them with extinction right, in the coming years. This, our food system's being pushed out to the ocean. The water wars in California show that you know, a major fish are overexploited, and our oceans just can't bear the burden of this major shift. We need solutions to climate change if we want to protect our oceans, and we need if we want to revive them. And this is why our vision is of ocean conservation zones with ocean farms, 3D ocean farms embedded in these conservation zones, working as engines to breathe life back into our marine parks. Right. If we, if, if you're an ocean conservationist and you don't have a strategy of restoration, of breathing life, of creating jobs, of feeding the planet while actually truly remediating and restoring our waters, you're not an environmentalist. You're a Teddy Roosevelt conservationist. You need a solution to climate change. You need to grapple with its implications. Right. You can't. Climate change is a game changer, as we all know. None of us are de deniers, but have we really thought through what needs to change at the economic level, the way we look at our resources um, uh, in order to address this. I mean, there's Naomi Klein says this changes everything. And we all have to ask ourselves, what is this change from our current model and our ideologies and the traditions we come out of? I think this vision of small, decentralized, grassroots social enterprises and economies as a catalyst for conservation, not just conservation, but regeneration that you hold and and, um, and you at GreenWave and all of your allies and partners is really the critical nutrients that I think a lot of people are yearning for and, and craving. So I'm so appreciative of, of your leadership in holding that line and holding us to that standard. And there's actually, you know, to your point about the challenges in California, I also, when I was down visiting Dan, had the opportunity to meet with some aspiring farmers in San Diego that are actually working with within public partnerships, but agencies are actually looking to help support some of those costly permitting and so I think I just I am so grateful for the leadership at Greenway that has made these pathways possible for so many so many entrepreneurs to now keep pushing forward and, and persisting even with the challenges. So I'm excited to to keep the collaboration with you and and keep the, seeing what's emerging in California. Yeah, it's really really exciting, and I'm excited for I mean for for the new economy modeling. I think we need more than one model and then we need to refer back and you know and uh, take lessons and see what makes sense where so it, here in new england we really did a 
sort of a beautiful, messy, you know, way where we're doing piece by piece. We're at farms place, and then we're just trying to figure out um, uh, what infrastructure we needed and what kinds of money needs to come in and what kind of organizational structures we need. And we figured it out. California might look much more like an in, sort of a strategic intervention, right, where you have three or four test farms and both to see what grows, to build the alliances, and to reintroduce the public to ocean farming, right? Because aquaculture is the worst brand name in the grocery store, rightfully mm -hmm. so. It's, it's, we, we need to restart that discussion to start with some underwater gar community gardens and some small commercial farms while also we're building the hatcheries, while we're building the, the processing plants on land and collecting the good scientific evidence on ecosystem services. Like that can all happen. All those balls can move at once this time which is really exciting to us. And all these questions, should it be a co-op model or should it be sort of, you know, circles of entrepreneurship with, you know, a food hub in the center? You know, there are all sorts of ways to do this, but I don't know the answer to uh, I mean, I come at this very unideological, ideologically. I think of the, the, we know what the goals are. The goals are jobs, justice, you know, uh, climate mitigation. And the way to get there, I think none of us really know. You know, it's like it's an open field. We all have lots of ideas and small pieces of the puzzle. And that's kind of what's, what's exciting. I think I have more in common than, say, ocean conservation organizations. I have more in common with, say, the solar, uh, the folks in the, in the solar community on the Navajo uh, reservations or in Kentucky, kind of solarize the haulers, things like that, of trying to how to model this economically um, and build a new economy around it. Mm. Thank you so much for reminding us that it, it is place-based and there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. I think there's a temptation out there to, um, to hear about your model and perceive it as a silver bullet um, that's going to produce food in our communities. And, and it's a great reminder, thank you for reminding us, that it really has to be contextualized within the specific social, cultural, economic dynamics of, of your particular community. Um, and that goes back right again to, to the ownership model, you know, the, I love that you yeah. speak to having, um, you know, worker ownership because um, that, that really does uh, allow that building these models that can help alleviate that. It's funny, we, you know, part of the things we learn, and I should have known this because I'm a commodity fisherman, um, but our trainings become, um, for, for fishermen specifically, not just for other folks so much, but uh, you know, fishermen, we hunt things, right? We're the last hunters in the ocean. And it is freaking exciting. I mean, I miss being out in the Barren Sea and out in the Grand Banks and, you know, 30-foot uh, waves and, and, and uh, uh, you know, chasing, chasing food around the country. And so, I, and we're going to lose that. In the, trans, in the transition of society, whether you're a coworker, especially heavy cultural identity, whether you're a coworker, whether you're a farmer, you're a fisherman, we're going to lose pieces of our our souls really, right? And that's heartbreaking. The question is, what do we move into? Do we do the globalization jobs of call centers that they try to push us into when all the steel mills left? No, we want to create a certain kind of job and jobs with meaning. So I tell my, the, our fishermen, I say, listen, we can still own our own boats. We can not have bosses. We can have self-directed lives where we succeed and fail on our own terms. And we can have the pride um, of helping feed the country. We can work on the water. That's the core part of of, of where our hearts are. And those are jobs we can still sort of write and sing songs about. That's what we look like, look at for a metric. And I think when people think about jobs and economies, they forget about meaning, like how um, uh, that is central. Like we need in this new climate economy and the new, new regenerative economy is to, 
is to fill people's souls because that's what's going to make them both go to work every day, but bring the creativity and the energy to keep the innovation moving, moving forward. It's the heart that's going to do that. Couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you for reminding us of that. Yeah. I just want to not be too positive here because you could do a whole nother show on all the challenges and problems and what keeps me up at night. Right? I feel very good about this core replicable model. I mean, how do we stay ahead of the climate curve is a huge question for me. Like I grow personally um, uh, shellfish and seaweeds that are in the southern region of their ecosystem. As that heads north, I need to know new, new things to grow. And are those things going to be economically viable? As we scale up to large numbers of farms along our coastline, well, are our crops just going to become a raw commodity? or not, right? Will that drive the price down enough so actually we can't guarantee a dollar a pound off the dock, right? And it doesn't, and it looks much more like the land-based farming economy and on and on. I mean, there are serious challenges out there. So I, I don't want to oversell it. And that's why we need all hands on deck. We need economists, we need policy people, we need scientists, we need sort of students and engineers, everybody here helping us um, uh, do this. So it's a, it's a great segue as we, as we, bring our conversation to a close. My next question for you, especially recognizing that, first off, thank you for taking the time, especially during harvest week. And I know you've got a big, um, you're, you're attending, you're, you're uh, sailing to uh, Washington, D.C. for the Climate March next week. I'm curious what our listeners can do to support you, to support Green Wave. I know, I know Green Wave is always looking for, for financial support to, to keep this, this work going. What can our listeners do to, to right now in this moment support this movement and get involved? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of ways, and that's what's, um, it's just been so exciting to, to see this much energy around our work and so much the talent, people with all this incredible latent capacity um, coming. So, I mean, one way definitely is sponsor farmers, right? Greenwave has a farmer training program, and, and uh, we need sponsorships because, um, you know, we, we need to be able to support them. We need to be able to run programs. I think on the R&D side, we always have projects that need both good thinkers and good money in order to, to fund like our mobile hatcheries, for example, that we can fit into shipping containers or a site by or the same our shipping container um, processing, uh, you know, partial processing facilities. There's all this work uh, to, to, to be done there. And then, you know, just at a, you know, this is a time, this is a great renaissance of, of food. Bring your talents and your creativity to bring your community together to cook this new these new dinner plates right to move bivalves and sea greens to the center wild fish to the edges let's do that and create those moments as a both a delicious sort of loving way to spend time but also to educate community and tell this uh story um i think both of those would and so if you go to greenwave.org uh, the nonprofit website and uh, that's that's how you can support let's get in touch it's a way you can sign up to be a farmer and donate I'll tell you, our challenge is, of course, way too much interest and activity and not enough resources. That's where we're at now. I spend my time in a heartbreaking way saying, telling farmers. I mean, in California, I got a list of over 100 people that want to start farms, and we just don't have the capacity yet to do that. So that's where we're heading. And then I'll just close by saying the Climate March has been a really exciting thing. We're going to go 100, you know, travel 150 miles by both to the Climate March with a, with a message to the administration, there won't be any jobs or uh, food on a dead planet. I mean, we look like Trump supporters, but we're not because we care about NOAA funding, EPA funding. These are the things that have allowed us to be the entrepreneurs and keep working on the water. And the coalition that's come around us 
has been really unique and exciting. So we have uh, some of the most famous chefs in the world, Renee Rizzetti, David Chang, uh, as sponsors. We have B Corp. So we have Ben and Jerry's, Patagonia, Dr. Bronner's, those folks all as also as sponsors. And then we have, you know, the Big Greens, which is the Sierra Club. We have NRDC, Oceana. We have Bioneers as well. All And that mix of uh, folks, I think, is a really unique group to send us as fishermen and farmers to the to, to the march to, to send a message that we care about jobs we want to create new opportunities and we need to protect our planet so if people want to support that they would go to gofundme right and search for climate march by sea if they can't make it there there to the climate march themselves they can definitely support you to bringing this message there on their behalf absolutely yes gofundme and you search for march by sea and you can follow us we'll be we'll be you know on social media during the trip it'll be hashtag march by sea um, we'll be on Instagram, Facebook, and places like that, and people donate. We've had some great beer donations, so it's, it's definitely to get rowdy. I mean, after all this, we're just fishermen. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's, it's not a G-rated trip at all. Well, great. Bren, before I let you go, if there's any last thoughts or remarks you'd like to leave our listeners with, we're just so grateful here at Lyft for the, the beautiful vision that you hold of an economic system that really can uh, restore and regenerate not just our ecosystems, but also our social fabric of, of people really recognizing um, and treasuring each piece of food they put in their mouth and all the resources that went into creating that food and, and you know going back to communities that have been disenfranchised or marginalized from the economic system and having them take the lead. Really appreciate the way you, you emphasize the need for indigenous perspectives in this, in leading this economy. And yeah, just so grateful. I'd love to hear your, your closing thoughts on all of that. Yeah, I mean, first of all, thanks so much to Lift Economy. You all have been incredible advisors. I mean, I am, at the end of the day, I haven't taken a, a math class since I was uh, dropped out of high school when I was 14. It, it is a, the, the investor space is, is very complicated. And you guys have just been incredible advisors. And um, I don't think you actually know how important that's been, been to us as we wade into those, those scary waters. I, I just close by saying this is the opportunity here is really to do ag and food right this time, right? Take the lessons of industrial agriculture, take the lessons of industrial aquaculture, not make the same mistakes. Our oceans are these incredible blank slates. Let's do it right. Let's make sure social justice is woven into the DNA of this new ocean economy. Let's make sure that leases are are affordable to young farmers. Let's make sure our our seeds um, and commons aren't privatized in this process. And let's make sure our infrastructures in poor communities that lift them out of poverty and create all these opportunities. That's what's so exciting, is to take the challenges of climate change, move out into our oceans, and really um, uh, have this first generation, um, you know, first time generations to really do food right and do what we think of as, you know, let's come together and make a living on a living planet. Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.